Welcome back everybody, um, we are back with another episode of How AI Built This. Today's show and every single other one is brought to you by the wonderful people at Cathcart Associates, um, technology recruitment extraordinaires. Uh, full disclosure, I do work there, um, but we are indeed awesome. Uh, so on today's episode we have Matt Baker, um, he's the Chief Scientific Officer um, at a company called ClinSpec Diagnostics in Glasgow. Um, so what Matt and the ClinSpec team do um, is pretty unbelievable actually uh, in the world of AI. They've developed a revolutionary blood serum test uh, which uses an infrared light um, and serum diagnostics uh, to help with the early detection of brain cancer and other diseases. I'll let Matt tell you uh, his story and the story behind the company um, and where kind of the AI comes into that. Um, partly because I am not smart enough uh, to go into any more detail, um, but mostly because it is his company. Uh, so ladies and gents, please welcome Matt Baker to How AI Built This. So first of all, welcome to the podcast, Matt. Uh, you just mentioned it was your first your first podcast recording. Yeah, it is, absolutely. I don't, don't normally get to do many of these things, so it'll be interesting to see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be grand, I'm sure. It's actually uh, it's a, it's a secret into the world of kind of editing and stacking podcasts. So it's the first one I've done in a few weeks, so I feel like I'll be perhaps a little bit rusty. So we'll see how it goes. No, but on the podcast, we always start in education, and I think for the first time, either in a while or maybe ever on the episode so far, um, education will obviously play quite a, a big part in this podcast. So uh, it'll be kind of a, a bit of a chunk at the start. So um, I think you started your kind of academic life uh in manchester right i did yeah so so i moved to manchester at 18 to basically to escape from preston so it was the it's kind of the next biggest town along (laughs) a bit bit further south so i moved there when i was uh, 18 and i started my degree at what was umist the university of manchester institute of science and technology where i did chemistry uh stayed there till uh, 2004 doing that uh, degree and then stayed on in Manchester to do my PhD basically. Yeah, nice. So I was going to say that. Yeah, so you did the chemistry degree and then the PhD kind of followed. And uh, I think from your LinkedIn, chemical engineering and analytical science. Was that something that during your degree you kind of just spotted there was an opportunity to stay on and do a PhD, or was it kind of pitched to you at some point that that was a good opportunity? I mean, how, how did that come about? So basically, as an undergrad, I attended a, a poster session for my kind of like final year project that, that, that I was doing. And uh, I'd, I'd met a couple of people on the way that were quite influential. So first of all, there's this guy called John Dwyer, uh, Professor John Dwyer, and he was a materials chemist. And what he was moving his research into was how cancer cells can move through bone. So bone's just this, this very porous material. So and he used to work on concrete and loads of different things. And so he, he had the, an idea of that there was a we could use spectroscopy, which is what I use, basically vibrating things with light in order to in order to be able to track that. Uh, so he he basically said that that in the future you could be the first um, spectroscopic oncologist, so the first person who's really doing spectroscopy for for cancerous uh, approaches. And then during my final year, uh, during my year in industry, I met a guy called Professor Peter Gardner, and Peter Gardner is still my mate today pete's uh, we, we we talk quite a bit and still still collaborate and pete ended up uh, visiting me for my year in industry my year in industry was basically me um using spectroscopy again to quantify perfume in deodorants but pete wanted to use it to kind of quantify molecules in cancer cells so i came back to 
Manchester, did that with Pete. Then I met John and then um, I was interested in doing a PhD. But unfortunately, John and Pete didn't have any funding. So they introduced me to one of their friends called uh, Nick Lockyer, who was my PhD supervisor. And he was looking at doing uh, imaging cancer cells via analytical chemistry. And that's how I ended up staying in that area. I really had a, a cancerous focus and um, wanted to do analytical chemistry in order to develop and push that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I suppose, I think I take it for granted sometimes on the podcast, we've had a few PhD kind of grad graduate people from that kind of world. Is the funding and everything, is that quite a complicated part of getting a PhD? Or is it the case of just finding a professor that has a, has a slot, essentially? Uh, so in the UK, it's all about funding. And the professor or the PI uh, applies for the funding and then employs you as a PhD student. In the States, it's the other way around. You go and find a slot in a teaching school. So funding's fundamental to my, my entire career. And being able to get it means basically that that you can then start to employ people. So uh, academia really is, a, is, is like having a small business. So me as a PI... Uh, when I'm an academic, my salary is 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 paid for by the university, but none of the salary of any of my students or staff is paid. I have to apply and get grants, bring that money to the university to employ people. So it's a small business where the boss has has a salary confirmed. Yeah, and was that your first uh, in your PhD? Because I think this is right. But when you're in your PhD, there's a kind of teaching element to it as well, isn't there? You've got to take some of the undergrad courses, and what, was there an element of that for you as well? Uh, so I, I demonstrated, so I demonstrated labs, but uh, only when I got to um, postdoctoral level did I was I allowed to lecture at, at Manchester. Yeah. So I did some lab demonstration, which was good and, and fun, and also you got paid, so you got extra money to your to your salary. So so that was always handy, and then yeah, moved into an honorary lectureship when I got my fellowship. Nice. On. So just before we go into the kind of postdoc career, was the whole experience of a PhD pretty positive for you then? It, it was. So when, when I try and explain PhDs to the students I take on nowadays is is that basically it is a roller coaster. So you start off thinking, oh, great, this is this is superb. And you know, your first year and first of all, you're like you kind of like, I suppose, in awe, uh, oh, I'm doing a PhD. Oh, oh, oh it's wonderful. It's, it, it's great. And then the reality starts to bite in. You, your experiments are failing. You, you haven't made any progress. You're not earning as much as your mates, and you're working longer hours. So it's uh, and but then but then towards the end when you start to discover things or or when you start to get results and get things out, and then after you do your viva, it it, it is it was overall a positive experience. I did I did get to travel quite a bit as well. So that's one thing that I've I've always wanted. To yeah, you went to the states quite a bit, right? Yeah. So during my PhD, I spent three months in Pennsylvania State University. Nice. Uh, doing some more research there and then I moved back uh, during my postdoc. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. Um, one of the things actually that I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but one of the things I noticed from PhD, um, like people that were undertaking a PhD, because when, when I worked in Tesco during uni, there was a few PhD students who were picking up shifts left and right to try and kind of supplement income. And they were easily the hardest working people that I'd ever met. Um, like they were all knocking their pan and doing their PhD however many hours per week and then they were coming to tesco to do their shifts and then they were also doing other bits and bobs on the side and like it, it is like a really it's a really time consuming thing like it's not one of those things where i don't know some people think of like university generally as a bit of a sky if like a PhD is yeah. like that is full on yeah it should be it was yeah it's more than full time yeah. basically in order to get through it it also becomes like your baby and your project and you 
and you live and breathe it. The, yeah, the, the work-life balance isn't good. I think I think it's got better better nowadays, but um, and, and the pay's gone up as well, so that, that's always helpful because yeah. people used to get paid a very, very low amount. To do yeah, I think that's why the guys I worked with, so there was a guy who had a, he was doing a PhD in, it was computer science, but with a, with a kind of nuance to it, and there was another guy um, who I worked with quite a lot that was doing a, a, a brewing PhD, so he, he was at Heritage Watt in Edinburgh, which and they've got quite a big kind of brewing department, if you like, yeah. um, and he used to just do crazy shifts. And I, I always wondered, you know, why he did that. But yeah, I think it was because when he was doing it, the PhD salary just wasn't it wasn't enough for him to to kind of I don't know be in Edinburgh and do all yeah. the things he wanted to do. So yeah, you kind of touched on the fact you had, you had a postdoc career um, in Manchester. So that was when you started. Is that what you mentioned when you started doing some more of the kind of lecturing work? Uh, yeah. So um, basically, my supervisor Nick uh, knew I wanted to travel a bit more, and there was this fellowship that came up. Uh, so he helped me write a proposal. And uh, so it was kind of like combining the work that Nick was doing to finally getting back to be able to work with Pete again and combine those two together. So I, I did spectroscopy and spectrometry in this. So luckily I was successful in that. And then I did a year at Manchester where I did some lecturing and started off on that. And then I moved out to Berlin straight after oh, that. nice. Um, I've heard, I've heard very Berlin, good things yeah. about Berlin as a kind of, I suppose as a tech community, but also just as a place to live. Oh, superb. It was my favourite European city. Now. Oh, yeah. It's, I, I try and go back every two years. It's really, yeah, if you, if, you, if you get to go, go. It's really good. I, I, unfortunately, I, I had everybody out in the basically the winter period. So I visited the same Christmas market about 20 times, <laughs> just just with different people around the place. But no, Berlin is a is a superb city. Nice. And luckily out there, there's, there's a place called the Robert Koch Institute, which is um, a, kind of like a federal health ministry. And uh, so... And there was the basically one of the uh, major guys in the field of which I'm in at the moment, which is biospectroscopy, in particular using infrared in order to analyze it. So if you don't know what infrared is, I suppose now is a, a good time to, to try to try and explain yeah. it. So everybody everybody knows music. Yeah. So pretend you're plucking a guitar string. Yeah. So you pluck that guitar string and it vibrates. That vibrates at a note. It's an A, it's a B, it's a C, you know, it's a yeah. note. So if I change that guitar string to a steel, nylon string, whichever, that vibration changes. So the note changes. If I tighten that guitar string at the end, if I make the make it tighter, make it tauter, then I pluck it again, that vibration changes. Okay, so now replace that string with a bond. So let's imagine a bond is like a string. If we pluck that bond, that bond vibrates at a certain frequency. It vibrates at a note and it's predictable. We can we can pick up that vibration and measure it. If we change the string of the bond, if we change it from a single bond to a double bond to a triple bond, that vibration changes again and it's predictable. If we tighten the bond, if we change the weights of the atoms at either side of that bond, then that vibration changes. So basically, molecules are made up of all different types of bonds, single, double, triple, and they're made up of all different types of atoms. So we have loads of different vibrations within a molecule. So that's the way we can use vibrations to detect which molecule we have, because they always vibrate at the same note. So we're able to detect it like that. Yeah, okay, no, that makes sense. Um, have you, I imagine you've had to perfect that explanation over the years, just that many people yeah. ask, like, so what do you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Music's, music's always a good equalizer as yeah well. everybody likes music. no it's a handy example um yeah i must say when yeah. i read when i was reading up on you guys and th there's obviously the talk about the infrared um the only time i've ever really 
like you really come across infrared was when it remember it used to be on mobile phones all the time there was like bluetooth and infrared came out yeah. together and then it just disappeared forever for whatever yeah. reason you also did a couple of years i don't know if this was part of the travel you mentioned but with um, was it dstl uh, so yeah that, that that came after so after berlin and then moved to boston um worked at harvard medical school for oh, what, just a year and a bit then basically uh opportunity came up at uh, DSTL. So I moved back to the UK. I moved from Boston, um, a nice bustling city, to to Salisbury, uh, a very nice but less bustling. City. <laughs> and uh, started my work. Yeah, started my work down at DSTL. Nice. Did you uh, just to quickly go back to that? But did you enjoy Boston? I've, again, another city that I've heard nothing oh, but great things about. Yeah, Boston was great. So I very very nearly uh, stayed on there for for another year, but it was uh, it was more of the the healthcare services and the time of life about thinking about starting a family that, that made me move back to the UK. Ah, the, the medical insurance of America. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that could be a podcast in itself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what, what, what were you doing with DSTL then? So I was still doing spectroscopy and uh, spectrometry, uh, but really it was uh, in, in detection as well. So just trying to detect different forms of, um, of nasty agents really. Yeah. Okay. No, that makes sense. Uh, and was that a little bit less academic? Was that a little bit more kind of like industry focused? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it taught me more project management. It taught me more. Um, um, so so it's in academia, you can do anything you want. So basically, if you have an idea and you get funding for it, you can do anything you want. Within the Ministry of Defence, of course, they, they have an aim and they have a requirement. So they have a focus. So if things are outside that focus, then they're, then they're not, then you're not able to do it. So yeah, it taught me more focus. There was more stringency around it. There was more areas that we couldn't go into. And also you've got to think about more ethics as well about, about what we're doing. And that, that, that came through in the DSTL world. Yeah, no, that's one of the, I mean, it's one of the very, few kind of criticisms when I've had people on the podcast about that kind of academic lifestyle and um, background is that you can often just get so used to the way of like kind of like you said like a bit of like freedom and uh, Mm -hmm. there's an element of creativity but also an element of like there's no real time pressures whereas when yeah when you're in industry whoever is paying at the end of the day normally there's a kind of urgency and an expectation of getting things done so it's probably quite a quite a handy kind of lesson for everyone to learn yeah yeah I, I, I think it's different so so there's absolutely time pressures in academia but i think it's the um the the, the appearance or the ability to translate something so in industry you you're doing something to make that product better in academia sometimes you're doing something to to discover something which has though application at the moment but in the future may completely revolutionize what's what, what what's going to occur so lasers now are absolutely everywhere, but basically yeah. uh, an, an initial, and, and they're found in, in, in more things than the inventors could ever have wished for them to do, but they didn't really know they're going to have that impact later on. So I think, I think there is a negativity around the ability to take something that is invented and push it through to, the, to, to, to a product. And that, that takes people with a lot of different skills in order to be able to do that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's a good way of putting it as well. I mean, and after DSDL, um, so you've done quite a lot of moving around so far yeah. in, in this chat. Um, I think you ended up going, I mean, almost as far down the country as you could get to, to work at Southampton. Is that right? Yeah, well, so that that, that was part of my DSDL uh, position. I had a oh, nice. 
I had a visit uh, visiting fellowship and a project with Southampton University. Yeah, then so then after DSTL, I moved back up to Lancashire for a couple of years, yeah. uh, where I worked for the University of Central Lancashire. So I moved back to academia, and then uh, finally moved up to to Glasgow. And this is the this is the place I've lived the longest since my degree. So I was supposed to ask you why, but that's just rude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we're from Preston. Ended up finding yourself in Boston and Berlin, and then settled in Glasgow in the end. Yeah. Um, no, I'm just joking. It's, it's a great city, <laughs> obviously. I mean, I, I love I love living in Scotland. But yeah, so you started there as kind of senior lecturer and then a reader in chemistry. So for, for people that aren't kind of uh, au fait with the terms of, of academia, what's the difference between kind of senior lecturer and then being a reader? So it's basically, uh, so a senior lecturer is a, still a research-based position, but then a reader is the position, is a promotion to before you become professor. So uh, it's basically the next step to becoming a professor. So normally it can split. So different universities have different things, but uh, normally you can, everyone can be a senior lecturer and then some people can go become a principal lecturer on the teaching side and a reader on the research side. So it depends what yeah, you okay. choose as your speciality. Is there always a teaching element in universities? Is that going to just par for the course? Like even if you yeah. get up to like the highest of professor level, you still will be teaching at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, on Friday, I had a lecture from uh, Professor Tom Welton for, I got him to lecture to the group, and he's now the president of the Royal Society of Chemistry, and he says, if you don't want to teach, don't become an academic. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think everyone's probably had one of those professors that they feel like the teaching part is just like their least favourite 25% yeah. of their job, and they just can't wait to get back to like their office to continue their research. But yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, the great people that everyone remembers probably love both sides of it. Yeah, I think I think there's a change now as well. So it's more, uh, I think that there is more of a focus on on teaching and and providing academics with skills to teach and also skills to manage. Whereas previously that that there were never that there were no training courses. I suppose when when the older academics nowadays were were coming through and coming up. Yeah, it's quite bizarre when you think about it like that. Like you you're very good in your field you do a phd like yeah. you do some postdoc work and then you're just kind of thrown in front of a bunch of first year chemistry students and told to make them learn stuff like yeah. it's quite a it's quite a difficult job it is so i mean and then when you've got the teachers that they've come from who have uh, basically done their a levels and these are skilled teachers who have learned how to teach from their degree or on the job training and then you've got a, a young lecturer who's never done it before and they're just like go teach so, but but nowadays there are training courses there. So Strathclyde has one that 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 you that you join as a as a new lecturer, and they they help you through and to and to develop that skill. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because I mean, I always remember when we did our uh, like kind of smaller breakout sessions, and a PhD would come in to do the classes. Like you could just tell the ones that were made for it and the ones who yeah. were just like this is just this is just part of your gig as a PhD like you're gonna have yeah. to get through this hour and hope for the best so no that's good that they start teaching it um <laughs> and just just before we get on to kind of what you're doing now um obviously having that conversation for the last 20 minutes or so that academia has played a pretty kind of massive part in what you you're doing now and uh, where you've been and um, even to the point you said you still talk to the guys and, uh, and mates with your um kind of pis and stuff um is it a path kind of you would recommend not just from the phd but kind of like taking that opportunity to do a bit of traveling and seeing like different places as well so so i think travel has been the the best thing that that i have done not not not, not gaining the phd but as as a person travel has taught me uh a lot a real a real lot it's taught me 
what how I want to be and also it's taught me how I don't want to be, like working under different people has taught me how I want to set things up. So I think academia is 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 great. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone because there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of failure. You've got to you've, you you do fail a lot of the time. Even the most successful academics basically fail more than they succeed. So you've got to be able to get used to that in order to be able to do it. But for me, it's been it's been it's been a great career, and I think it's just um, moving that on into I suppose different things with with uh, with Clinspec. Yeah, and that's actually one thing we never talked about. But I think it's one of the things that you, when I speak to some of the people coming to the end of a PhD or end of a kind of postdoc research post, that you can sometimes get a bit jaded with the fact that I think is isn't it right that most posts are like one to two years at a time, and then you've got to reapply and like maybe you've got to move university to get to the next thing. So although travel was amazing for you, like it could potentially be one of the trickier parts of it that like you spend two years in Manchester, you love it, but then the next post you have to be in Aberdeen. Like yeah. it, it can be quite it can be quite unsettling as well. Oh absolutely. And that that's one of the things which which is a hot topic. So we, we offer we offer postdocs no security. We've uh, we've trained them up very, very well and and mainly we trained them on governmental funding. There are industry based PhDs, but mainly it comes from the government. So then we don't give these people uh, security, so therefore their careers are all over the place. They have to move, and then then some people do not move. They decide, no, I've, I've got a family now. I can't move, and then it's worse if you've got a two academic family as well. Do they? Ha- There's no guarantee that they're going to get the the job at the same place or or be able to move yeah. together as well. But uh, but yeah, I never yeah, thought about that. It is a uh, it it is becoming independent and getting a permanent position is difficult in academia nowadays. Yeah, no, it's definitely one of the kind of topics that's come up. A fairly whistle-stop tour, but we've got to, uh, in your kind of career timeline, around uh, February last year, I imagine there was probably some preamble to it, but Clinspec was kind of born around about February 2019. What was the kind of build-up to it? And, I mean, obviously, you're probably one of the few people I've spoke to on this where their kind of career path just makes sense. Like, you focused on that on a similar area for a long time so yeah. there's no surprises in what you guys are doing um but when uh, kind of what did the idea spawn from i suppose so when i moved back to academia from uh dsdl i actually was able to look around like kind of like into a field i'd left for a couple of years and see what had developed and what hadn't developed and an area that hadn't developed uh and and that hadn't developed very well was serum spectroscopy analyzing blood with infrared light. So I started uh, working in that area with my first PhD student. And basically I would come in at six, I'd do some work, he'd take over at nine, and then I'd go do my, do my day job. And then I'd come back at night time and finish it off. And then from that, I was able to build build up some, some uh, spectra and prove what I wanted to prove, which is basically that potentially we can detect brain tumors from your blood via infrared spectroscopy. Um, so after that, um, it was all about um, getting the results out there. So and luckily, my university at the time said, no, no, before you do that, you've got to submit a patent. So I managed to get an invited talk at a conference in Thailand, and we submitted the patent from Dubai Airport before I gave that talk in Thailand. And so and, and it was quite That's amazing. Yeah, so, so we got it out there, and then we were able to discuss the results and, 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 and show them. And then we just started building it up, building it up more and more. And then I moved up to Strathclyde, and 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 by that time I'd, I'd proven it on 433 patients, 
but I didn't have a route to make it um, high throughput or really to make it accessible for uh, for for more people and to try and get uh, like traction to get it out there. Uh, so I went back to funding agencies and, and applied for more funding. And basically, the fundamental agencies kind of said, uh, you know, you, you, you've proven it. And the more applied agencies kind of said, you haven't proven it enough. So there was, but we, we knew we had this idea and we knew we had the, the basis of, well, we had a patent ap- application and submission in. So I got in touch with Catherine Breslin, who's uh, our tech transfer officer at Strathclyde. And I used some of my startup money to go visit my mate down in Swansea, who was a guy called Paul Lewis, who was setting up his own company just to see what it was about, to see if I could do it. Uh, so I came back up and I, I decided I, I wanted to, to go down that sort of funding route. And we applied for £10,000, which which we got. And that 10000 brought Mark Hegarty on board. And Mark's now the CEO of Clinspec DX. So with Mark, Mark brought business expertise and he brought that that kind of focus which which I was lacking and he brought the, the knowledge of how to write a business plan how to target it and that sort of commercial focus around it and we're able to build a commercial model from that and luckily Scotland has a great ecosystem for doing this sort of thing they're very very switched on in this area and they put funding into it so from Scottish Enterprise we applied for a what's called a high growth spin out grant so the whole aim was to basically develop the model of Clinspec DX, be able to register the company, but um, start working as a company and track it along, hitting the milestones that we put in the grant, the technical and commercial milestones for the first time, because previously they've all been technical research, and then develop that. So we got that funding, then we got phase two funding. It was all about preparing us for spinning out, and then we spun out in February 2019 with uh, 1.67 million which is a combination of, uh, of grants and equity as well. Right back to the start of that part, you mentioned that someone um, at the university had mentioned getting the patent. I mean, was that just a bit of advice they were giving you or was that something they've seen before and realised it's really important or was it just a bit of luck? Uh, so uh, really they, they saw my research and then they were having a, a, a push on making sure that IP was protected. Because I think one of the issues about, um, again, if we go back to talking about companies and universities, previously the, the the major challenge for an academic was to publish a paper and get that science out there, really. And then gradually over time, it's changed that universities are now uh, seeing that they need to protect the IP in order to help them translate that, that product and that idea to the market as well. Because there would be no reason to push something carrying on if you don't own the IP, really. Because then you need that yeah. in, order, in order to be able to access it and, and develop it. So so now universities, now I'm talking this has been changed for, for decades now, really. But now universities are starting to see more value in accessing and holding the patents as well as publishing the papers. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, one of my mates actually works for Edinburgh Uni and he does a lot of uh, kind of like it tries to hook people up from their department into industry and kind of do introductions. And I think, I think part of the role is to get like big companies to help fund parts of certain PhDs, all that kind of stuff. And, but I always kind of tried to get him to explain as well, like how does the whole like spin out process actually work? Like do you get to the certain point where it's just too big to be a university project and it needs to be a company and and the universities are happy for you to do that? Um, Or is there a bit of a kind of like, to and fro and give and take to try and get that done. 
Uh, so, so from Strathclyde's um, side of things, then they 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 really like uh, spin outs. They really like innovation and entrepreneurship. So, so, so they 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 push it, and they and they also have very good terms because officially Strathclyde owned the IP. Like I don't own the IP because I work for the university. I'm an inventor. And Strathclyde own the IP, so there's licenses a thing to sort out. But no, Strathclyde's one of their aims is to get more spin-outs, get more companies out there to to develop and, and really make an impact with the research with which they're doing. There, it, it's not to um, negate licensing or working with big industry. That's just another route. So some projects are suitable to license to a big company. Some projects are suitable to to spin out into a small company. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I suppose, like, if you're dedicating, if universities are dedicated to research and uh, and trying to do like cutting edge things in certain areas, you would almost like the spin out part of it is almost like a kind of, I don't know, like a gratification or like a, a kind of it's, it's proving what they're doing a little bit. Having having and you get that it's not really marketing or like kudos or anything like that, but like it, it's it's a good news story for the university in the future. Yeah, it, it absolutely is, and and also it's. Um, it's it's really so. I mean, so Strathclyde's is like a place for useful learning. That's their that's their tagline, and that's what they're they're hanging it on. So if it if it's not useful, if it is useful, it should be be able to get out to the community that that needs it to to the end user. So they're trying to yeah. bring that forward and, and, and push that up. No, that makes sense. And I suppose going back to you mentioned bringing like kind of like a CEO on with some business experience before that, but when you first started. Or even just now, because I'm sure you're still involved in a lot of that. Like, has it been a quite a steep learning curve, kind of being, you know, like an academic with one PhD helping you to essentially running a business? Oh, absolutely. But 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 it's been great. So I've I've uh, I've really enjoyed it. So since like 2015 was was when we got the the first 10k, and then just learning lots of things. And now, so now I am 60 40. I'm sixty percent in the company, forty percent academic, and so on. And the yeah. group's growing as uh, as well. So we've got the research group and and the company and the company running. But yeah, learn loads of new things, and uh, yeah, loads of jargon. Of course, it's mainly getting your head around the jargon. But the the Ministry of Defence has so so much jargon. I was I was used to speaking in that as well. But uh, yeah, oh, if you've worked in any public sector or like <laughs> yeah, basically public sector, if you've worked in that world for more than a day. You'll yeah. be you'll be adept at any jargon. No, no worries about that. You mentioned the successful kind of fundraising, so there was a mixture of grants and, uh, and equity. That's one of the big things where you kind of see a huge different variety of opinions on it. Like some people say it's like it's the hardest thing to do is to get fundraising and get your head around it and and do the pitches and meet the right people and, and shake the right hands and all that kind of stuff. And then you do get other people where. I don't know, maybe the kind of area that you guys work in as well, like it's quite an obvious route for it potentially. So, I mean, w- was it actually a not bad experience for you guys? Uh, no, so it, it wasn't a bad experience, but again, there, there is a lot of failure. So so you, you kind of have to be have to be used to it. And, and also you've got to realise you, you may not fail because your, your idea is rubbish. The idea could be superb. Your business plan could be amazing. It's just that that investment round that that particular investor has at that time is, uh, is closing. And, and the timing's not working out. Or they're shifting strategic focus to focus on later stage companies instead of spin outs from the university. They may really like it, it's just just they can't they can't fund in it. So that, so there's a the, the, it's always the right partner and the right and the right network and, and the right pitch in order to be able to 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 get that 
get that in there. And then when, when they come together, then then it works out. So we were, we, so we were, we, we had uh, our, well, basically our, our cornerstone seed investor was a company called EOS, who are out of uh, St. Andrews. And their, their target is early stage tech companies. So they, uh, they wanted to take early stage tech companies, invest in them and bring them out of universities. We also had uh, Mercia in there, who are who are, um, are are one of our investors, and they came on board from an Innovate UK grant, which was kind of like 50-50, so fifty percent government funding, fifty percent private funding as well. And then um, and then the, and then we have the Scottish Investment Bank, which again is showing the great ecosystem in Scotland that we can get that investment to to, to help us to help us carry on. Yeah, and you mentioned something interesting, like when you get the pitch right, the timing right. Um, and is it one of those, like if you were speaking to another startup owner or somebody right at the beginning, like is the investment piece one of those kind of gut feel meetings where if it feels wrong, it probably is. And if everything's aligned, you'll probably know. Yeah, I think so. You, 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 you can tell, you can you can read the room and then people, also it depends upon the response because if, if, if you've got the correct person, then it'll be either a quick no or it'll be a decent yes. The worst thing to happen yeah. is a slow no. If, if it just carries on and on and on and you, and, and you get a slow no coming from it, because you're putting your effort and your time into it, and it's just it's just never going to occur. So you, you do kind of learn where to where to put your efforts. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and I suppose uh, I've got a few other bits on on the company, but uh, um, given that we're on a very loosely based AI podcast, um, you mentioned a bit about what you guys do. And I think I mean, it, it sounds like it would make sense from what you said earlier, but where does that kind of AI kind of machine learning piece come into the early detection stuff? Yes, absolutely. So from the, so I, I explained earlier on how infrared uh, can can detect a molecule. So so then the, then we take your blood. In your blood, there's you know thousands of molecules. Yeah. So and when we shine infrared light on them, they're all vibrating at the same time. So we get a, a, a signature of of what your of, of of your blood of your blood vibrations. So if we can accept the premise that when you have a disease, molecules in your body change, and the only way for those molecules to be transported around your body is via your blood then the blood chemistry is changing. If the blood chemistry changes, then the vibrations change. So what we do is we take uh, healthy people and symptomatically diseased people, so people who don't have the disease but have the same symptoms, we analyze their blood, and then we take diseased people and analyze their blood. And then we take both of those signatures and we feed it in to machine learning or artificial intelligence algorithms and ask the, and train the algorithm to detect the differences between those two groups of people. And then we blind test in a blind set, obviously, of who we don't know. And then the algorithm predicts which infrared signature of vibrations is cancerous or non-cancerous. That makes sense. And is the aim of the company then to be able to... So you mentioned, I think it's on, um, on the website, I think it says brain cancer and other diseases. Is it probably applicable to, I mean, almost any disease given the, the explanation you just mentioned, or does it lend itself particularly well to brain cancer for some reason? So uh, one of the reasons we're detecting brain cancer is because the the research group started off wanting to wanting to 
tackle hard problems. So it's more hard to detect cancer. So brain cancer is a very hard to detect cancer. It's, it's behind your skull and it's, it's, you've got to image it. It's not something palpable on the on the exterior of your body. Um, but no, mm. the, the FGIR is a platform technology. And what we developed is a platform methodology that could be applied to many different diseases. It will have, there will be some diseases which is better at and some diseases which is worse at. It's just at the moment we haven't analysed enough diseases to be able to say which ones it is worse or better at. Could you solve COVID? <laughs> so interestingly, <laughs> yeah, interestingly, yeah, COVID's uh, COVID's one which 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 can which would have a change. The problem is is what sample would you look at? So and the knowledge that we have. So to die, to detect COVID, you probably want to do saliva or a, or, a, or a, the, the, the nasal swab and analyze that. And then yeah. there's the, the whole question about, do you want to do a serum test for COVID to see if people have had it or, or where, where it's going to go? But basically, anywhere that there's a change in chemistry or a change in molecular concentrations, then we can apply uh, infrared spectroscopy uh, the only caveat comes in is that it has to be in a high enough concentration for us to be able to detect it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think, I mean, everyone's problem with COVID just now is because we, we just don't know anything about it. Whereas obviously you, the way that your technology works, there's so many other potential kind of implications for it on a much larger scale as well with kind of yeah. a, a track record of, of kind of data and information. Yeah, so what, what, one of the good things about the, the sort of approach that we have is you don't necessarily need to know things about it you need to know that person is ill so i so i, I yeah. need a, a comparator set i need to know that you have covid and you don't have covid and then i can just take take this take the spectrum and then start to build up the database and analyze it yeah no that makes sense and it, obviously it's, it's good to be able to do that but is the company aim then to work with like specific hospitals and kind of uh, specialist disease experts and be able to is it always going to be a kind of detection of someone that already has it rather than any sort of preventative stuff? So no, so 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 the company aim is, is really focused upon upon cancer, although we are interested in other diseases because uh, and other applications because we see the ability of the technology to to be applied very, very widely. So really it is a earlier detection because that's that's where we can we can make a big impact. So basically ninety percent of cancers really could be uh, have a very very positive impact if they were detected earlier, either from current surgery or current radiotherapy and chemotherapy. So there, there's no need really to, to 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 have a brand new blockbuster drug. If we can detect it a lot earlier, then we can start to well increase people's quality of life definitely and save lives in in certain in certain diseases. Yeah, they talk about that so much. Like, I'm sure it's prostate cancer was one of the examples. Like, if they catch it early enough, like the survival rate is actually massive. It's yeah. just the issue of they don't get to it quick enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with, with with brain tumors, so basically, there's a thirty eight percent of people visit their GP more than five times before the brain tumor is actually detected. And this is no this is no fault of the GP or anything. It's, it's the fact that you're more likely than not to have something else. You, it, it's, it's not going to be a, a brain tumor because, and some GPs don't see them in their life. But imagine going back to GP five times and, and the and the time lag that that causes in your diagnosis. There, there yeah. is no test for for a brain tumor. The only way to detect a brain tumor at the moment is to use a CT or an MRI. 
and that has a that has a large cost associated with it. So yeah. something like brain tumors, you, you, you can identify it, and because there's because there's that time lag, it contributes to the fact that sixty two percent of patients present in A and E. So you actually fit or, or seize or, or something else occurs and you turn up to emergency department, they then scan you. And unfortunately, maybe that the tumour is at, uh, is larger and at a later stage. Yeah. So using your kind of technology and, uh, and the infrared light, you can ho- like hopefully negate the need for five visits and, uh, and it would be a lot quicker. Exactly. And then, and then also, so you're not only just protecting the patient from identifying a tumour or not, you're also the patients that do not have brain tumours, which are in the overwhelming majority, are then then you can go find something else. You can go remove that from your diagnosis. And psychologically you can you can placate that patient and make sure that, that they're okay. Uh, economically yeah. as well for the NHS, you can uh, and for healthcare services worldwide, you can you can save them money. So I work with a with a um, a great guy called Paul Brennan, who's a neurosurgeon at Edinburgh, and uh, he's just he's published a study, and basically from his CT scanning, he had to scan sixty patients to find one brain tumor. So for every CT scan that says, "I think this patient has a brain tumor," he had to scan sixty of them, six zero, and he found one. So if he had a blood test before that, you could reduce that massively and then reduce the number of scans that, that are occurring daily. Yeah, no, that makes loads of sense. I mean, and that's probably a, a quite natural question for you guys, and maybe this is still part of what you guys are doing, but how do you get from the lab, and you mentioned a while back you had those kind of 433 kind of examples of, of uh, proving, the, proving the technology and the theory. How do you get that to be in NHS-wide, globally used? Like, is, it, is there a huge process to do that? Yes, absolutely. So and that's yeah. and that's and that, that's what we're doing at the moment. So um, about in oh, so we've done so we completed uh, a study where we placed our spectrometer in Edinburgh Hospital, and we were prospectively recruited three hundred and eighty-five patients who were visiting Paul's uh, clinic, basically to see if they had a brain tumor or not. As as they were going through that process, they kindly donated us their blood and we analysed their blood. So we've done that study and that came out very, very positively. So that's great. So then we could move on to our next study. And in our next study, we've expanded the patient population to include the A&E department. Because as I said before, a lot of brain tumours do turn up in A&E. But also everything yeah. else turns up in A&E, stroke, all other serious neurological pathologies, loads of different stuff. So we've now expanded it to do that. And that's the clinical study, which is we have currently running at the moment. Alongside that, there's a big regulatory piece to make sure, and rightly so, that our uh, our test is able to do what it says that it can do and that our processes behind all of it are set up, such as our quality control processes. And then you move towards C marking for an in vitro diagnostic device. And then you move towards approval in different international domains. So there is a, there is a, large, there is a large process from having the idea and saying, publishing a paper, and like ages ago when I said I could detect brain tumours in this many people to prove in the test for it for every single situation and then get it out there. No, I was going to say, so where's my train of thought going there? I had two pop into my head straight away. So from a data point of view, is quite a lot of the training of the models. Obviously, the quality of the data is going to be really important, but what I was just thinking, now thinking out loud, is, is it quite easy from your data point of view that because of the infrared light, can detect the anomalies, you're not 
there's no bias there really like is, is is it quite cut and dry or is it quite difficult to train the models properly oh yeah it's, it's difficult to train the models to train the models properly so first of all we um we invented a new way to do infrared spectroscopy using uh kind of like a disposable slide to make it first of all cost effective and high throughput which meant we had to go back and retrain the models completely uh so one, one of the biggest things is your, your comparator set so so we can get loads of diseased people and, and, and say and identifying the, the correct people that have the disease is, is not a problem because either you've got mm. cancer or you don't have cancer. It's identifying the people who people think have the disease and they don't and finding out that you can get those correct people into your system because that's the only way to test it. A lot of studies out there use healthy people and say, I can distinguish a healthy person from a cancerous person. And that's, that's not really helpful. You need to be able to distinguish the, the people who would confuse a GP or confuse another test. So the people who have symptoms of the disease that you're trying to detect, but who do not have the disease. And once you've got all that together, then you can start to look at it as well. See, I just would have assumed before we spoke that you would take 50 healthy people, 50 people with a brain tumor and just like train the model to learn from the 50 ill people. But yeah, that makes so much more sense. So that's that, that's exactly how we started off. So the first proof is, can I, can I do it on healthy people? So that, cause that, that, that's the easiest and the widest difference between between those people. And now what we've yeah. done is, is, I call it, we, we made it dirtier. We've got a dirtier data set, data set because we've added in all these people who have been referred for, for medical imaging who don't have the disease. And now we've added in loads of people who are coming into the emergency department who don't have a brain tumor, but have loads of other diseases like, like stroke, but they're still going through the, the medical pathway to question if they have a brain tumor or not. So they're the people we need to, be yeah. able to detect against in order to identify a brain tumor. Yeah. And my other random train of thought when you were explaining a lot of the regulatory and uh, I mean, I suppose also the benefits of it as well from the cost point of view, it, it feels like this could be one of those kind of breakthroughs where it might even help like less well-off countries more than it would help like America and the UK. Because obviously MRIs are expensive, like CT scans are expensive, uh, pretty fortunate position in, in kind of the Western world where it, it's it's kind of palatable for a lot of people. Whereas, yeah, I mean, I can imagine the the kind of, in some other countries, even like you mentioned Thailand earlier, for example, like it, it must be really prohibitive for some countries to even think about using an MRI. Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And there's a, yeah, so uh, another great, another great point, another great push is, is to be able to, to help those people as well. So it's really, so, so the commercial market will probably be more in, the, the the developed areas of, of the world for for one of a better word but but then yeah absolutely there's there's applications of this sort of technology uh, at the point of care in different diagnostics really cancer is is more of a of a developed nation's disease if you you've got sepsis you've got loads of different diseases which are which are targets in in other countries as well yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and then going back to the kind of um, day-to-day running of the business side, given that when you start a company, there's normally a couple of people and then you want to grow it, you get your first couple of people in, normally it's kind of like maybe a CEO, maybe a, a CFO or something like that. Um, now that the team's a little bit bigger than that as well, I mean, what was it like going from this is my kind of baby to, all right, we've now got four or five, six people all doing different things. Like how, how is that kind of recruitment side of it for you so so yeah i've i've, I've really enjoyed the recruitment side of things I, I always keep keep an eye or, or a note of people that 
I want to bring into the company and, and who I think will do do well as well. And, and we discuss it as as a team. But so Mark Mark came on board with the initial money, and then with the high growth spin out funding, Holly Butler came on board. And I also collaborate with my colleague in the in the department called David Palmer, and we're the four founders of Clinspec DX. So we founded the company together and spun it out of the university. After that, we've employed um, Ben just well we've employed loads of people in order to be able to have a technical side of things, and and they're really superb and, and all adding to the team. But um, one of the big one, one of the hardest things to find is the is the more non-exec director positions for. Like the the people who have been there and done it before and can come in and, and provide guidance to small companies like us and and, and to help us to help us come through. But yeah. no, I think I, I really I, I, I enjoy collaborating. So I'm 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 a chemist who's trying to do things in medicine. So all the way throughout my career, I've had to share ideas, share knowledge, and and share kudos in order to be able to 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 get the to get where I am and, and to try and get this out and it's founded on the the fundamental basis is that we really want to help people we want to we want to get something out there that that can make a difference to to people's lives yeah no that sounds amazing one of the questions i always ask but you've actually answered it um pretty well anyway was kind of you found anything that works really well kind of when it comes to that point of trying to build like what you might call like a high performing team but the, the fact there you mentioned that you keep a note of people you kind of see who's coming through um and i think when we spoke initially as well you mentioned kind of from a technical point of view like on the data world and uh, those kind of roles it's actually quite easy because you've got such good access to phd students or people in the field that you will because academia although obviously academia is such a large overarching term for the whole of any university ever but like it's actually quite a small net world especially when you drill it, drill it down into what you guys are doing if you've got the kind of collaborative approach that you've got then you kind of will you'll find it easier than a lot of people i would have thought to, to attract people yeah, we, yeah, we, we haven't had any any issues attracting people, um, and people. So we we haven't been going for long. So, but 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 pe- people, nobody's left the company since last year. So hey, that's we've good. got hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent retention. So, but um, generally for high performing teams, it's uh, it's it's trust. I think you've got to trust people, and then also empower them to to have ownership of, over what they're doing. And basically, that that, that that's kind of like saying. What what do you need to, to do to do what you can do? Is there is there anything blocking you that that I can give you in order to be able to do that? It's it's either skills or it's a, or it's an item of something that 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 that'll make it easier. And if you clear that path and 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 show that you can trust them, then then people are generally accepting and 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 they want to work well. Yeah, no, I think that I think you're bang on, and uh, and kind of in a nutshell, is exactly what you would expect to kind of get people to kind of work well. And then kind of last point on the company we're obviously in the midst of a pretty crazy three four months and there's and there's a lot more to come i would have thought but you did mention just before we started recording that you're back in the lab to kind of some sort of normality so uh, i mean what does i was gonna say what does the rest of the year but uh, what, what does the next kind of little while look like for, for you guys what's the big priority just now well when, when we went into lockdown we're in the middle of our second raise so we uh, we went went into lockdown trying to raise money in order to, to carry carry the company on. So um, the, the the major thing which we're doing at the moment is I'm, I'm glad to say that, that that's gone that's gone very positively. Yeah. So I can't say much more apart from the fact that we're we're in legals at the moment. So hopefully soon we'll be able to sign on the dotted line and, and get that funding in. Nice. The other major priority is to just get that clinical trial back, clinical study back. Sorry get that back up and running. The, the research nurses are now back 
being able to do research yeah. from treating and that detecting people with COVID. So we're going to get that back and running and try and push forward the cancer diagnostics. Because I don't, I don't know if you've seen the the news stories around it, but but really people stayed away. Yes, yeah, it's, it's terrifying. That's one of the big fears that there's been there's been almost like an acceptance that or not acceptance, but like everyone's been so focused on COVID not exploding everywhere that everyone else is kind of missing out a little bit and people are either scared to go or they're not really doing the checks. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I I don't know how I would have handled COVID or or whichever, but, but basically an impact of, of the way that, that that it has been done or the way that people feel is that there is that people have not been accessing care as they would have accessed it before. Yeah. So, uh, but, but, but for us, it basically kind of like compounds our position. If there was a blood test, an easy test that's that's out there that that potentially is 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 done, you don't need to go to A and E in order to to get into a machine and detect and detect your tumor. Yeah. Then 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 it's more of a reason for us to to double our efforts and and try and push it through and get it out there in the future. Yeah. So yeah. So the so the few months and uh, also just just we need to get more people in and get get more work done and expand the platform and get get that proof that we need for that for that regulation yeah no that sounds amazing I, i'll be really excited to see where you guys go like you said scotland's got such a good uh kind of like tech ecosystem so um uh, it'd be good to see a, a kind of another success story from that and i suppose just to finish then where uh is the best place to kind of keep an eye on like the funding news or if you guys were like hiring or anything like that where would be the best place to kind of see that so the the, the website www.clinspecdx.com or so we do have a twitter presence as well nice so have a look at that but yeah i mean there's uh yeah hopefully we'll get some good news about the funding soon nice that'd be good um we'll keep an eye out for it and if it's announced before we get this posted we'll i'll link it to everything as well brilliant thanks a lot fantastic well thank you very much for coming on no it's been great thanks a lot for, for having me it's been fun i've enjoyed it good cheers matt what a cool company and an amazing story uh, from kind of academia to uh, where Matt and the team are now and where they're going. These are kind of the AI stories that I would like to see more of on the news um, and not all the kind of scaremongering shit that we're all used to by now. It's really exciting to see where Matt and the team uh, kind of take Clunspec and, uh, and the whole, uh, I don't know, all the kind of different use cases potentially for what they've developed. So that would be pretty cool to see. Uh, so thank you for listening and thanks to Cathcart Associates for continuing to make it all possible. Uh, I'll be back soon for another episode, uh, but until then, goodbye.